proclaiming Christ for you in word and song. 850 KFUO Clayton, K224FT St. Louis. Working for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod supports the mission of making the love of Christ known throughout the world. It's more than a job. Your work will be fulfilling and have true meaning and purpose by helping us positively impact people's lives on a daily basis. It's the best place to use your God-given talents. Once you've experienced the culture here, you'll never want to work anywhere else. For opportunities to serve, visit lcms.org careers. here for Bible study and to all of you on our KFUO listening audience as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians. And today we're beginning at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 10. Verse 10. Now we're going to look at a little uh, this chapter differently. Usually we go verse by verse, but basically these are sections. And so we need to read the whole section. And uh, you may think, pride, just an overview of the chapter, that this is just more about uh, the whole phenomenon of the speaking in tongues in Corinth, but it really isn't. Basically, the rest of chapter 14 is on the subject of worship. And there were certainly problems in worship uh, and Corinth, Partly because, well, we, we read through the part about head coverings for women. Then we read through the fact that they were having problems in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And there were abuses. But evidently, from what we will gather, there were others as well. 
So Paul is trying to deal with the whole topic of worship. Now here, there are certainly some things about speaking in tongues, but we will deal with those as we go. So we begin at verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, try to excel in building up the church. All right, what he's saying here is there's undoubtedly many languages. And just to review, when we read the whole thing about speaking in tongues here, we are not referring to it as some ecstatic language. We are referring to it as the speaking of different languages as happened at Pentecost. So what is being said here is there are countless languages. But when you hear someone speaking another language you don't understand, they're a foreigner to you. They're receiving nothing out of this. And so Paul's big point here is whatever's done in the church and whatever is done in worship should be for the edification of the church. That is for the building up of the church. And if it doesn't build up the church, it is not doing what it's supposed to. It's not proper, not appropriate. If people are not built up, but there is division and there is, uh, there is a destruction of unity, then this is not the way the Lord would have worship to go. Okay, and then we begin this first section, beginning verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. There it is again. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, we're back to this concept. Uh, if someone is among you and they're speaking Zwahili and you don't understand Zwahili, what they're saying may be great. It may be thanksgiving. It may be wonderful. But no one is edified and no one else gets anything out of it. 
Therefore, it does not build up the church. It does not build up the church. Um, it's, it's, so that's why Paul's emphasis is he himself speaks in tongues. Uh, Paul was all over the, uh, all over the, the known world. And wherever he went, he was able to communicate the gospel. So uh, he could do this. But if you are in a situation where no one understands anything that you are saying, then it is not a blessing to the church. It is simply not a blessing church. That's what his warning is. Now, this is not something we have to deal with today. Um, last week, when we had our friend here from Nigeria, and we asked him to bring us greetings, could we understand what he said? Absolutely not. If he were to go over to church and preach an entire sermon, in Nigerian, it might be interesting for the first two minutes, but then after that, we do not get the message of the gospel out of that. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Do not do that in the church. And see, this is what was going on in Corinth. You must remember Corinth was a very diverse city. Lots of religions and probably lots of languages spoken inside that city. How many languages are spoken in New York City? How many languages are spoken in Chicago or L.A.? How many languages are spoken in St. Louis? And so you can't uh, make that work. If we had representatives from all the languages in St. Louis and you put them in our church and we wanted to preach the gospel, it would be difficult. It would be difficult and everyone would not be edified. That's the correlation that Paul is, is, plus he's also in the back of his mind. There's also the whole matter of how those that were speaking in tongues in Corinth were doing so out of pride, and showing that they were better than everybody else. So it was a divisive thing. It was a divisive thing. Paul is trying to get them over that. So what has he been through? We've seen him go through since chapter 12. He lifts spiritual gifts, but what is the last gift lifted, listed? Speaking in tongues. He makes it clear that so many other gifts are better, especially prophecy. And of course, the greatest is love, 1 Corinthians 13. So 
he's trying to get them off this fixation with this one gift as if it is everything. Okay? Everything. Next section. 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to the people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now I'm going to stop right there. Okay, first of all, he says, do not be children in your thinking, but be children when it comes to thinking up evil. Okay. Thinking up evil. But then there's this strange quote. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That is a quotation from Isaiah 28. And if you read Isaiah 28, what you find is that he's speaking to the people of God, Israel, Judah, and trying to share with them rest and peace that he will give them but they will not listen. So then, he says, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. He will, God will speak to them, not in Hebrew, but in Assyrian, when they're carried off into exile. Then, God's going to speak to them in another language that they're not even going to understand. Because they wouldn't listen to him to begin with. They're going to hear a new language. God's going to speak to them, but they're not going to be able to tell what. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Even though the Assyrians are going to speak to them, and maybe there's even an interpreter, they're still not going to listen they're still not going to listen. So that the tongue makes no difference. Makes absolutely no difference. Because they will not listen to God's word in any language. In any language. They are rebellious and will not repent. Then the next verse is very interesting. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, how do we make sense out of that? This way. Let's go back to Pentecost. And let's go back, and suddenly the disciples are speaking in different languages. And people are hearing the gospel. And they're coming to faith. 
But what did the unbelievers say when they saw this great sign? They've had too much to drink. They've had too much to drink. You see, anytime we look in the New Testament and, and Jesus does a sign, the Pharisees will turn right around and say, show us a sign. Because unbelievers don't see them. They see something weird happening and conclude they're either drunk or they're out of their minds. So it's a sign to unbelievers, but they don't get it. They don't understand. Jesus would do a sign right in front of them, and they'd say, show us the sign. They missed it. The unbelievers missed it on the day of Pentecost because they refused to think anything that the, that the disciples were drunk. They dismissed it. They dismissed it. Meanwhile, prophecy builds up believers. Okay? Prophecy builds up believers. All right, let's go on. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So, again, if we brought all the languages that were spoken in St. Louis and got them all in our church and had them all start talking, trying to proclaim the gospel, what would an unbeliever say if they came in? These people are nuts. These people are crazy. Doesn't work that way. What he's actually saying is the tongue speakers would love to have it that way because then they could all talk. But it wouldn't do anybody any good. Okay? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever outside enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. So in other words, if the word is clearly proclaimed, especially the law, that there is sin and that we are accountable to God and that he has, uh, God has threatened uh, punishment, then the unbeliever can understand the language and is convicted. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So in other words, when there is prophecy, and people can understand it. It may well lead to their, the conviction of their sin, their acknowledgement that God is here, and ultimately their belief in Jesus Christ. That happens if there is prophecy. And by what we're saying prophecy, that doesn't mean foretelling the future. That doesn't mean that. 
Prophecy is used of simply proclaiming the word of God. Simply proclaiming the word of God. So when the word of God is proclaimed, we're told that it never returns to God without accomplishing the purpose for which he sent it. What is the purpose for which he sends it? Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of his word. But if nobody can understand what you're saying, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Now, we can talk about this. Let's talk about it from a... No, let's do the next section before we do that. But um, when a visitor comes to church, he's got to be able to hear the word of God. And taking everything else aside, it is critical that the scriptures are read and the scriptures are proclaimed. And that that proclamation is in the truth and purity of the word of God. Truth and purity of the word of God. Now we add this third section. Okay. What then, brothers? This is what he's really dealing with the worship service. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That's the third time he said it. It's to be done for building up, not for tearing down and dividing. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each one in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. All right, what was happening? What we gather as what was happening. What was happening is the people in the church were coming together and each wanted to participate. Okay? One had a hymn. One had a lesson, maybe a reading from the Old Testament. Someone wanted to prophesy. More than one wanted to prophesy. More than one wanted to speak in a tongue. They were talking over each other And it was a mess. Worship was a mess. Now, we don't have that today. All right? We don't have that today because we realize that in a church of 2,000 members, not everybody can talk on Sunday. So... God has ordained 
that there be pastors. And the congregation calls the pastor to publicly proclaim the word and distribute the sacraments. So we don't have this. But you must remember in Corinth, there were no pastors. Not at this early time. There were simply probably believers who gathered together for worship. And at times it was disorderly. It was disorderly. Now what he's saying is, if there's not an interpreter for the languages, keep silent. He's also saying that if there is prophecy, that's fine. But everybody should sit quietly and assess what this prophet is saying. Now that's very important. Because what he's saying is, when someone says something, it needs to be tested. It needs to be evaluated if it is correct with the rest of the context of Scripture? Or is it something that's out in left field? That should still go on today. Even with pastors. If the pastor says something from the pulpit, and you have serious questions about whether it's right or not, you need to ask the pastor about it. What did you mean by that? Okay, what's the teaching here? That's a healthy process. That's what the Board of Elders is for, to watch over the preaching and the teaching the administration of the sacraments in the church. There is accountability. That's why he says the prophet is subject to the prophets. It is the context uh, of what you hear, and is it in keeping with the Holy Scriptures, or is, is it outside the Holy Scriptures? Is it not conforming to what the Scriptures teach? And that's an important function for all Christians. And it was here even more because there were no pastors. They needed to assess. And you remember, they don't have the New Testament at this point. They're all going by what they have been taught and know from the Old Testament and what Paul has told them about the life of Christ. Okay? So it was very important for them to evaluate this, but the primary thing is it needs to edify and build up, and it needs to be done in order. Chaos and disorderliness is not 
what the Holy Spirit has in mind in worship. We don't have chaotic worship. Okay? Now, let's talk about our own worship for a minute. When a new person comes to um, St. Paul's, they are certainly able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the law and the gospel, in the scripture readings and the proclamation from the pulpit. What may seem a little strange to them, depending on where they grew up and which church they grew up, may be the liturgical practice. Okay? Uh, if they come from a church that does not have a liturgy, that may seem a little strange, but it doesn't necessarily get in the way because they can still hear the prophecy. But what's so important in the church is this. If they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it is up to us to teach them why we worship this way and what we're doing so they have more understanding. That's why in the adult instruction class, at least I used to go through the worship service and explain to them what we're doing. And then they have a fuller understanding of the service. Further, the thing that is excellent about the liturgy, in most cases, if you're out of town and go to another Lutheran church, they're probably going to be doing something you recognize. Okay? And you can participate in that worship. Now, where we have a problem is, is where, and this is going to be in the next section too, we have to be careful that culture does not influence worship. Okay? That our culture does not influence worship that we say we have to do things this way to attract the people of the culture. And the danger in that is, in doing so, we move farther away from historic Christianity. And ultimately, we don't recognize that that has been passed down to us. And it gets to the point, and some of you may have been to churches like this, it gets to the point that when you go in and worship and come out, you ask yourself, is this my church? Is this a Lutheran church? It's so far off, it's not recognizable. 
So there's a fine line. Now, I'm not talking about things about whether you print the, the hymns in the bulletin or you sing out of the book. That doesn't make any difference. Okay? But um, when you get into the substance of the liturgy and what it teaches, and we get away with that, we can do damage. Okay? We can do damage. Which brings us to the fourth section. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Okay, I want to start with the whole thing about what he says about women. So, gird up your loins and be ready. As I'm going to tell you the historic position of the church. The historic position of the church has always been based on what we call the order of creation. The order of creation goes all the way back to Genesis. Now, Adam was created first and then Eve. Paul reiterates this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But there was a model set up in the order of creation, and it's actually more than just Adam and Eve. You see, in the Old Testament, it is made very clear when God calls Israel that he is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. This is further emphasized when we get even to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul teaches us that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And that as the bridegroom, he loved and gave himself up in sacrifice for the church. The church, then, is to be submissive to Christ, the Savior, who saved the church. It is not thought of to be demeaning or coercive or by force. It is completely and totally in love. This model is then the model 
for marriage. That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved his bride, the church. And that the woman is to be submissive to her husband. Not demeaning, not coercive, not by force, but out of love for him because of his love for her. So that's the model with God and Israel. That's the model with Jesus and the church. And that is to be the model for husbands and wives in the home. What Paul is now saying is that same model is for the church. That the husbands, the men, should be spiritual leaders. I want to emphasize that, spiritual leaders. That's one of the biggest problems we have today in the church. Men are not spiritual leaders. They do not take responsibility for their wife and children being in God's house and truly lead the household. If that's the way it is at home, we don't want to translate it to the whole church. Now, where in the world, then, did women's ordination come from? It is never a part of historic Christianity. It's not there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It was never questioned. But then, as I said before, what's happened is culture has imposed itself upon the church. There is no woman's ordination or any thought of it until the modern age. The modern age. And it was the changes that were going on in our culture that led some to give in to women's ordination. Further, there's a passage that they love to quote uh, that says uh, there's no difference between male and female, free and slave, that. They want to apply that to ordination. That passage has nothing to do with ordination, has to do with baptism and salvation. And there is no distinction between male and female. All are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we get to these other passages that are talking about worship, they all say the same thing. So with time, the church has given in to the culture. And it's not just this issue, unfortunately, it's others. But historic Christianity says no. Okay? It is the cultural view that has led to this position. And you can hunt all you want, but if you study the Bible, you're not going to find, not going to find um, passages that support 
anything other than what Paul is describing here. That's the historic position of the church. So notice how he ends that things should be done decently and in order. No chaos should result. So he's been through these four sections, and we see how they're not just focused on speaking in tongues, they're focused on proper worship. Proper worship in the church to correct it from what was going on with this chaos in Corinth. All right, I did all the talking today. I meant to do that. Yes, ma'am. You can ask questions to anybody. No, you don't have to wait to go home. And you don't have to wait. And you can teach Sunday school and do all... We're talking about public worship. We're talking about public worship. Yes, sir. They are. That's right. That, that's right. We're not talking about singing. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about, gosh, where would the Holy Christian Church be without women? Look at all the valuable work in the care of people. This is not pushing women away, saying you're not a part of this, you're on the fringe. That is not it. Jesus did not treat women that way. Especially the great uh, gospel where... Uh, Jesus and how he deals with women is the Gospel of Luke. And he deals with it over and over again, and they are treated with respect, and they are on the front lines of what's going on. Women witness the resurrection, not men. So you can't say that it's any woman. It's just when it comes to this public worship, it is to be in the order of creation as God started. Yeah, Don. No, um, the whole doctrine of prayer uh, is a kettle of fish. Okay. Now, there are some that are very strict and say, I shouldn't pray with anybody that doesn't believe all the same things that I do. There are not two people in this room that believe the same things. Okay. That might be the public confession of the church. We would draw a line in the sand. I, I would not... 
Usually you don't pray with someone who is praying to another God. Okay? But as far as Christians praying with Christians, I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't worry. Don't put up too many barriers. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, you know, what you're mixing there is church and state. What you're mixing is the kingdom of the left hand and the kingdom of the right hand. And that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Okay. But um, if you are praying with fellow Christians and you are comfortable, you shouldn't have to worry about that. Okay. But, well, that's your decision. Okay? That's your decision. There's not always a pastor there to um, sort everything out. You are perfectly capable as a Christian man and Christian woman who has been taught the Christian Lutheran faith to make a decision. Yes, Dennis? Okay. Yeah, now that's, that gets into something else when, you, when you're back into the realm of public worship. Okay? So let's say that there's a ministerial alliance and they want to have a joint worship service and you have uh, pastors from 10 uh, Christian denominations that are going to hold a public worship service together. At that point, if it was me, I would say no, because that public worship service is proclaiming that we all believe the same thing. Now, that's public worship. We all believe the same thing. And that's not so. Now, but here's another example. Um, if the Presbyterian Church called me and said, uh, we want you to come and preach at our church. And I said, okay, I'll preach, I'll do the liturgy, the service is mine, and it's going to be Lutheran going to be thoroughly Lutheran, and there's not going to be any other clergy involved, I can go do that. I can do it, go do that. But not mixing the... And, and, and we used to get on this always with uh, weddings. You know, a young couple would come to me, well, we want, the, we, want the, we want you to do this in the service, and we want the Catholic priest to do this in the service. No. Okay? No. No. 
So uh, you don't need to worry about that stuff. But you can pray with your fellow Christians. Okay. All right. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, I wouldn't make a if, if it's a meeting uh, of the church council and there are three women that, that sit on the church council and one of them wants to do the opening prayer I don't have a problem with that I don't have not me personally I don't have a problem with that okay yes Yes. Yes. But it wasn't public worship. He was. She was simply pre speaking privately to Mary and Joseph, and those that may have been in earshot. She wasn't standing up and claiming she was a prophet in the temple. Well, that's fine. But we're talking about ordained clergy. And she never, she never proposed that she was a, a, a pastor over people. Be careful, because in the scriptures, there is a distinction made between pastor and prophet. The Apostle Paul never called himself a pastor. It's not in there. Never called himself. So, yes. That's correct. They're not a Christian. That's right. For them. I, I agree. Totally. Okay. Next week, we move to the great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. It's almost 60 verses long. Probably take us three weeks to get to it, uh, through it. It is fabulous. And so we'll move on with that next week. And then we're going to uh, be coming to an end of First Corinthians in three or four weeks, but we'll talk about that as we get farther. All right? All right, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.